Hello and welcome to the COTS Podcast. I'm Jordan Wozniak. And I am Gavin Michael. This is episode three, Rav Yaakov Kopel Lifshitz, a Sabbatean who influenced the Baal Shem Tov. How are you doing today, Gavin? Jordan, doing very well. And uh, yourself? I'm doing very well as well. We're recording this on uh, May 11th, and here in Toronto, it's uh, actually a bit snowy, which is very unusual. So I'm looking forward to spring, and uh, I'm not sure if you're looking forward to winter in your half of the world. Well, our half of the world is uh, probably equivalent to your summer, so uh, it's it's not too terrible. And the cold months are only... July and um, August, pretty much. So we have one or two, perhaps three months of of cold. But our cold goes to um, an average of about 18 degrees um, Celsius. And right now we we are experiencing 23 degrees, uh, which which is lovely weather for us. I think it's time for everybody (laughs) to move to the Southern Hemisphere. (laughs) <laughs> That's an interesting idea. We'll see what kind of response we get to that suggestion. All right. You'll let me know. <laughs> but I will let you know. I will let you know. So today, Gavin, we're going to be uh, talking for our for our third episode here about, um, again, about the legacy of Shabbatai Tzvi. So for those listeners who haven't yet had a chance to listen to our first couple of episodes, uh, I thought it might be useful to give a little bit of an overview about Shabbatai Tzvi and uh, who he was, and his impact, which is uh, what the topic of our first couple of episodes. So Shabbatai Tzvi, of course, is famous in Jewish history for being uh, probably the best known messianic claimant of, uh, you know, the sort of late medieval, early modern period. So his he was born in, I believe it was the 1620s, and he died in the 1670s. And his uh, claim to fame was that he was a, uh, a he was a false messiah. He was a messianic claimant, and his his heyday in that regard was really, uh, I guess you could say, the 1650s and the 1660s. And everything came to a head in 1666, uh, which is in the autumn of that year, which is when we have this famous episode of uh, Shabbatai Tzvi, essentially. Uh, marching on Constantinople to seize the Ottoman crown from the Sultan. And the Sultan said, uh, are you crazy? And uh, your choices are uh, either convert to Islam or I will kill you. And, uh, and uh, Shabtai Tzvi's choice was to convert to Islam. And uh, uh, thereafter, he lived, I believe, another 10 years or so following that event. And uh, uh, he received, he still had many followers and received many visitors in his uh, comfortable imprisonment for that last roughly decade of his life. And one thing that really struck me, Gavin, in our earlier episodes is the comment that you made about Shabbatai Tzvi. These days, he's kind of like a, a, a side story to Jewish history or a footnote, perhaps. But in that era, he really wasn't, right? He, was, he had so many followers. His, the, the idea of Shabbatai Tzvi being the Messiah was so widely accepted in that period, in the mid 1600s, that it, uh, you know, probably half of the Jewish world, at least in North Africa and in Europe, uh, perhaps even more, were followers of Shabbatai Tzvi, right? Right, I agree with that, um, Jordan, absolutely. And it's something that I think history has ignored because um, he had followers who who were esteemed rabbis. He 
probably engineered one of the largest um, Jewish movements ever, never mind Messianic movements, but uh, just just the amount of people that came under his, his influence, you could argue that um, he, he created one of the, the largest Jewish movements of uh, um, history. Um, certainly not a, a footnote to Jewish history. His, a, his, his influence was felt afterwards for um, centuries. Um, I mean, we still feel that influence to this very day. That influence is something we discussed in earlier episodes, and we're going to get into it a little bit more today with one particular author. But I think it would be worthwhile for us to refer listeners, if they haven't listened to episode one, uh, Shabbatai Tzvi, Roots Run Deep, uh, where you gave a great overview of a lot of the controversies that emanated from the aftermath of uh, Shabbatai Tzvi's apostasy, even many generations after it occurred, right? So his apostasy, his conversion to Islam happened in 1666. And, you know, well through the 1700s and even into the 1800s, there were Sabbatean controversies as uh, various uh, texts, various rabbis were shown to be, or at least strongly suspected to be, secret Sabbateans. And so we talked about the uh, controversy between Rav Yaakov Emden and uh, Rav Yonatan Abishutz uh, about the amulets and about the secret Sabbateanism, and uh, also about uh, Rav Yehoshua Heshel Tsoref and his Sefer Hatsoref, which, uh, depending on which edition you consult, has some code words uh, or some unusual phrasing of the acronyms uh, in some words that, uh, uh, that uh, are kind of signals or, or uh, point towards Sabbatean beliefs. And you, you spoke about uh, Netzach, the word Netzach and the word Tzedek used in, in a particular context would have been perhaps a, a sign from one Sabbatean to other Sabbateans that, you know, they're, they're members of the same team. So, and uh, we additionally in that episode spoke about the connection between the Sefer Hatsoraf and the early days of the Hasidic movement. And that was a, a little bit of a thread that links the two, right? That links the, the Shabbatai Tzvi aftermath, if we can say, or legacy to the early, early days of, uh, of the Hasidic movement. And today we'll do the same about a different author, about Rav Yaakov Koppel Lifshitz. So, right, right. I, I think your, your point is a, a very important point because 22 years, depending how you count, I mean, Shabbatai Tzvi died in uh, 1676. According to Hasidim, the Baal Shem Tov was born in 1698, corresponding to the Hebrew word nachat or nachas. Um, according to secular scholars and others, the Baal Shem Tov was born two years later in the year 1700, died in 1760. But that, leads 20, that leaves about 22, 24 years between the death of Shabzai Tzvi and the birth of the Baal Shem Tov. Now, 20-odd years, two decades and a bit, is not a long time in history, especially considering that the Baal Shem Tov was born into a milieu that was saturated with open Sabbatians, hidden Sabbatians, crypto-Sabbatians, and it was something that was, um, uh, it, it was a world that was teeming with um, people who were interested in these ideas and trying to sort of recover from the devastation 
of realizing that Shapsite's fee was a false messiah, but then once again rekindling the hope and trying to salvage something perhaps from that movement. And the Baal Shem Tov was born into that world. And that's extremely important. Now, I'm not saying the Baal Shem Tov was a secret Sabbatian, but one, one needs to understand that that was the reality of those times. And I think it would be naive to say that there was no influence from the Sabbatian movement and Sabbateanism um, on, on the Baal Shem Tov and uh, his, his followers. In fact, in fact, evidence points very much to the contrary, with many of his followers and perhaps the Baal Shem Tov himself endorsing works. You mentioned Sefer Tzorif, which we spoke about last time, and uh, today's work, which we're going to speak about to today, um, that there certainly um, was a um, awareness. There certainly was, um, I would even go so far as to say, an endorsement of certain aspects of the Sabbatian movement from, from the early Hasidim and, and from the Baal Shem Tov as well. And so one thing that shows is that there, it's not necessary uh, – it wasn't necessary for the early Hasidim, for the Baal Shem Tov, to have met uh, Shabtai Tzvi in person, or you know, the, the, so there was no overlap in their lifetimes. There was, you know, perhaps a, a, a little bit around a generation separating the death of Shabtai Tzvi from the birth of the Baal Shem Tov. But because because of Shabtai Tzvi's legacy, and uh, and because of the many followers that Shabtai Tzvi had, and how uh, how much his ideas permeated. European Jewry, the, the Baal Shem Tov would have been perhaps familiar, if not in agreement with, but at least familiar with some of these Sabbatean ideas, uh, even though he was born a generation too late to have you know, seen Shabbatai Tzvi personally. Right. And I think that a good way of looking at it would be if, if you take our generation, for example, um, uh, 25 odd years ago, we had people like Reb Moshe Feinstein, we had Shlomo Kalabach, we had the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Right. And uh, certainly their, their legacy is, is, is still very, very strong and very, very much felt, even though it was probably that same amount of time that passed between that generation and, and, and this generation. So it's not a long time in Jewish history. Absolutely. And so uh, the figure that we're going to be talking about today, Rav Yaakov Koppel Lifshitz, is one of these um, one of these threads, perhaps we can call it, that links the Sabbatean era to the maybe formative years of the Hasidic movement to the to the Baal Shem Tov. So uh, he he's known for his book Sha'argan Aden. What do we know about Yaakov Kopel Lifshitz and about this book? All right. So first of all, I think that um, we shouldn't describe Yaakov Kopel Lifshitz, Lifshitz as a definite link. Um, there is some debate. Some scholars say yes. Some 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 say no. Obviously, the Hasidim would say no. Secular scholars would say yes. But um, I think at this stage we should we should refer to him as a possible link between the Sabbatian movement okay. and the Hasidic movement. Okay, so he writes his book Shar Gan Eden, which means the gate to the Garden of Eden. He writes it in uh, the Ukraine. I believe it was in the year 1701. It was printed only about 100 or so years after he wrote it. It was printed posthumously. 
1803. But now what's interesting about this book, Shargonaden, is that it follows patterns that we find um, in other works that are also suspected as being possible links between Sabbateanism and Hasidism. So in our case, in Shargonaden, in the Hakdama, or the uh, preface to this book, Yaakov Kopolifshitz writes very, very strongly against the Sabbatean movement. But when you read further into the book, it reads almost once again like a Sabbatean manifesto to a large extent. And this was a common technique. We find this in another work as well. We find this in a famous book called Chemdas Yamim, which perhaps we can speak about at a later stage, perhaps another episode, a fascinating story. Um, that book is probably the most controversial Jewish book ever because many people mm. regard it as an important work. Uh, we take a lot of our customs and even laws perhaps from that book today, but other people regard that book as also being steeped in Sabbatean um, theology. But once again, that book also claimed um, to be against the Sabbatean movement, but again reads as a Sabbatean manifesto. So already we're seeing that Shargonaden falls into a pattern of similar works that were um, appearing on the Jewish scene at, at that time. And that pattern being the idea that uh, the introduction or the preface of the book has vigorous anti-Sabbatean comments, uh, almost like a, you know, to excuse the author of any suspicions. But then later in the book, you find things that perhaps seem contrary to that. Is that the Correct. idea? Correct. And in our case, I think if we look at one or two examples they are not conclusive, but they point very, very strongly in that direction. So let's look at one or two cases. Yaakov Kofel Lipschitz writes in his book, he says, just before the coming of the Messiah, which the Kabbalists like to refer to as the Friday afternoon before the Shabbos, in other words, the Shabbos becomes the Messianic era, and we are now in the Ikvasid, the Meshicha, in the generation just before the Messiah. Once again, re remember, we're talking in the 1700s now, not in the, uh, not where we are today. Mm -hmm. uh, we still say this, the same thing today, though. But nonetheless, Yaakov Koppel was writing that we are now on air of Shabbos, the Messiah is about to come. And he says something very interesting. He says that when, when um, this cosmic Shabbos arrives and the Messiah comes, it will swallow death up and it will dispel the spirit of Tumor, the unclean spirit from this world. Hmm. And he goes on to say that as a result of Tumor, spiritual uncleanness being removed from the world, we won't need many laws that were there to safeguard us from spiritual uncleanness. Therefore, many mitzvahs will be abrogated and dissolved, and we will no longer have to observe those mitzvahs anymore. 
because the spirit of um, Tumor would have been removed from the face of the earth. Now, that seems like a fairly neutral statement. It's a wonderful idea. Good, the, you know, the messianic, messianic era, there'll be no Tumor. Lovely idea. No one can argue with that. But once again, understanding the um, milieu in which he was writing and where he had come from, this was exactly the kind of teaching that Shabzai Tzvi was um, writing about and speaking about strongly. But Shabzai Tzvi was rather devious in this idea by saying that the Tumah is being removed from the world. Even in, in his day, Shabzai Tzvi believed that it was no longer necessary to keep certain laws because the spirit of impurity was already starting to be removed from the world. And therefore, the Sabbateans became extremely promiscuous. Mm-hmm. Um, extremely promiscuous. We, we spoke about this last time as well, where they would actually go into the sin in order to elevate the sin and uh, restore the origins of the sin to its original state and um, to hasten the coming of the Messiah, they would try sin as much as possible to do, to, to, to do repentance and teshuva in order to um, hasten his arrival. But they indulged in what we today would would consider halachically certainly and morally and ethically to be promiscuous um, acts. So, so, so to have a Yaakov Koppel Lifshitz speaking like this already um, makes us uh, suspicious. Right. Yeah. Echoes of yes. Sabbatean, and, you know, not quite to the same extent of, as Jacob Frank, but uh, his followers also had uh, some comments along those lines as well in some of his writings about the idea of you know engaging in sin to elevate the husks and things like that. Right. But once again, as you say, it's a common thread and it, it's something that, that one needs to uh, take note of. But then he goes on to say that once the spirit of uncleanness has been removed from the world, he goes a step further. He says that a new Torah, a Torah Chadasha, a new Torah will go forth. A new Torah. Now this already is starting to sound subversive. Where do we get the notion of a new Torah? Well, the fact is that we find it quite commonly throughout uh, Jewish literature, particularly in some of the Messianic works, and even in some of the later Hasidic works, even Reb Nachman spoke about the Torah Chadasha. But there were different ways of understanding it. The way Yaakov Kopolipschitz explained it was that the letters of the Torah will simply rearrange themselves, or they'll be arranged, or somebody will rearrange them. And not a single letter will be added, and not a single letter will be taken away. But the order will be changed. And the words will change. Mm. And therefore, the narrative will change. And therefore, laws will be abrogated and dissolved. And we will have a new, a new order. Or, I mean, a, yes, a, a new spiritual order, which once again is very, very subversive for a traditional Orthodox um, Jew. Although, once again, I say that this is not uncommon in mystical writings. 
yeah, that idea of rearranging the letters to form a new, to form something new seems extremely Kabbalistic to me. And uh, so there's, there's a proud tradition, I guess, behind that type of comment, uh, even if the end goal of what, uh, what Lifshitz was doing here was uh, perhaps not quite on the straight and narrow, but the, the technique that he is, that he is using, the, you know, the kind of uh, metaphorical technique of letter rearrangement is definitely, it has a lot of precedent, right? Right, absolutely. Um, in fact, Shabzai Tzvi was a master of Lurianic Kabbalistic thought. He was a master of the uh, um, Kabbalah of, of the Arizal, and uh, he abused it, but he certainly understood it, and he certainly uh, um, tried to get as much mileage out of the uh, um, Arizal's Kabbalah as uh, possible. So he was very, very familiar with it, and that allowed him to um, be disingenuous, perhaps, or not perhaps, to certainly be, be disingenuous with the way he interpreted it and uh, explained it. Another aspect in the Sha'argan Aden, which uh, perhaps raises our eyebrows, is uh, is how Lifshitz describes Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu. And ah, maybe tell us a yes. bit about that. Very interesting. So he refers to Moshe, or he says that Moshe is an, an ish Ha'elokim, he's referred to that often. But Yaakov Kopelifshitz asks, he says, well, Ish Ha'elokim, which means a, a man of God, we understand this as being a godly person, you know, a man of the cloth, a spiritual human being. He's Ish Ha'elokim, a godly human being. Yaakov Kopelifshitz says, if he's a man, if he's an Ish, then he's, um, he's not God. And if he's not God, he's not man. So what does it mean? He's an ish ha'elokim. And he answers kind of in a, 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 I suppose, a a dialectic Talmudic style. He says, in heaven, he's called God. He's called Elokim. But down here below on earth, he's called man. So once again, this is extremely subversive. To have a human being who's regarded as not a God, but he's regarded as God. He's God. He is God. In heaven, he is God. But then God comes down to earth and he becomes man. God incarnate. I mean, the connections between this idea and other uh, religions, Christianity and uh, uh, Sabbatianism as well, where they also believed that uh, Shabbat Tzvi, to a large extent, was God incarnate, is once again another very strong indication that Lifshitz was writing um, with with a skewed eye on uh, um, uh, Shabbat Tzvi's um, mystical system. From a non-Kabbalistic, perhaps non-mystical perspective, I mean, what we learn about what we all learn as kids about Judaism and Jewish, Jewish belief, it almost defies understanding that a mainstream Jewish text could make a claim like that. It's just, uh, you know, it is it astounding. Just, it, it, it is absolutely astounding. Yeah. It's a, you know, on, on the, the surface reading of it is that this is a Christian idea that has crept its way into a, a 18th century <laughs> Jewish work, um, which is unbelievable. I mean, imagine a rabbi today writing that uh, you know somebody is is uh, some 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 great rabbi is God. Right, right. 
Some of them do to, to a large extent. Uh, you know, maybe not to this extent, but they, they, they say similar things. But imagine if someone wrote like this to, today, they certainly would be regarded as uh, outside of the camp. Absolutely. And so perhaps now we could talk about another work of Lifshitz, which is his Sidur, Sidur Kol Yaakov. I think there may actually be some contemporary Sidurim that have the Hebrew title Kol Yaakov, but that's not, those are not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Lifshitz's Sidur, uh, which had some interesting, uh, interesting um, endorsements. Yes. So first of all, the name Kol Yaakov is obviously from, from his name, Yaakov Kopo Lifshitz. So it's Kol um, um, Yaakov, which means the voice of, of, uh, of, of Jacob, of, of um, Yaakov. Um, he produced a um, Siddur. He produced a Siddur. Interesting that this was as part of the course. Every Hasidic court of note, every Hasidic movement that was worth um, its own salt produced its own Siddur. Some of them even produced their own Shulchan Aruch. You had to have a prayer book. So he produces this prayer book. He claims that it's based on the Nusach of the Arizal, the rite, mm-hmm. the prayer rite, R-I-T-E, of, the, uh, of, of Rabbi um, Luria. And um, he also writes a, a Kabbalistic commentary on the Haggadah. He wrote some other works as well. But this book, this Siddur, which is so interesting, and this is where the roots really, really go deep, and they they get so entangled. Um, this siddur became the basis for the um, Hasidic prayer book, hmm. which just shows how widespread uh, and how acceptable this this uh, um, uh, uh, siddur actually became. Now you might ask. Okay, so so he writes a siddur, he produces a siddur based on the uh, the Yarizal, what's the big deal? Well, in the siddur, he makes reference to Shargan Eden. Mm-hmm. The Baal Shem Tov, we know, knew and possibly used the siddur called Yaakov. Right. In the opening page of the siddur, um, you can see it on the blog. Um, there's a clear reference that the author of this prayer book is the same author of Shar Gan Eden. Um, and in fact, we don't ever even have to speculate because in the approbation to the book, it is clearly written that when the Baal Shem Tov saw this book and saw the manuscript of, in fact, both books, Shargan Eden and the Kol Yaakov Siddur. So the Baal Shem Tov was aware. We don't have to speculate that he would have known about Shargan Eden. According to the approbation, he saw Shargan Eden and he saw and possibly even used Kol Yaakov. And to quote the, uh, the um, approbation, he hugged and kissed them both manuscripts, Shargan Eden and the Siddur called Yaakov, and he used a lot of energy with his arms hugging the author's writings. Um, hmm. 
in the um, um, Haskama, in one of the approbations, it says, She Hasidur Hazeh Ra'a Hanesher Hagadol Kadosh Elyon Habal Shemtov the Yashar Be'enav. Clearly, it says that the Siddur, this Siddur, was seen by the great eagle, the holy of the Most High, the Baal Shem Tov, the Yashar Be'enav. And it was good, it was straight, it was correct, it was accurate in his eyes. In other words, the Baal Shem Tov approved of this Siddur, and he liked this Siddur. Um, so there, there's no question, there, there's no question that the Baal Shem Tov was aware of, of these writings and that he endorsed these writings. Um, also in the introduction to the Siddur, it refers to Yaakov Kopel Ish Lefshitz as Harav Hamakubal, which means the Kabbalistic rabbi. And the right. Kabbalistic rabbi in those, in those days, um, you know, obviously he could have just been an ordinary um, uh, conservative, um, in the orthodox sense, Kabbalist. Um, but very often, uh, Mekubal referred to someone uh, who, who, who studied the writings of Shapsai Tzvi because Shapsai Tzvi had his own Kabbalah. He was endorsed by Nathan of Gaza, Natan Ha'azati, uh, who was one of the great Kabbalists in the world. In fact, Shapsai Tzvi wouldn't have risen to any prominence had he, had he not been endorsed by the great Kabbalist Natan Ha'azati, Nathan of Gaza. And in fact, his Shargan according to Gershon Sholom um, and others, uh, reads like the credo of Natan Ha'azati. In other words, uh, really, really resonates with the writings of Nathan of Gaza. Um, so, you know, to have these connections between the Baal Shem Tov and Shargan and the Siddur Kolyakov becomes very, very interesting. Again, let's not jump to any conclusions, but the connections are fascinating. And they don't surprise me at all, but they, they certainly are extremely um, interesting. And so we have... I think the conclusion we can draw from that is that the, the Baal Shem Tov had no, uh, it's not like this stuff was being hidden from him, uh, you know, in his perusal of these works. He read them. He, you know, Yashar uh, Be'enav, it was, they were correct in his eyes or, you know, straight and, uh, you know, morally correct in his eyes. And uh, in their entirety, I suppose, you know, everything that they, uh, that they represented, all of these illusions and these, you know, perhaps pseudo Sabbatean ideas, he read them and he approved of them. And was that, I know, I think in later Hasidic movements or Hasidic follow-ons, was that uniform? Did everybody share the Baal Shem Tov's enthusiasm? Um, according to David Sears, who writes a lot for the um, Breslov movement, um, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was aware of the Siddur and his student Rabbi Nassan of Breslov was aware of the Siddur and they, bro they both spoke 
critically about the um, Siddur. Um, so that's really interesting because now we have a, a later Hasidic master who suddenly criticizes this Siddur. But there, in my mind, are a lot of um, inconsistencies. I, I don't fully understand this because, first of all, I came upon a source that says that Red Machman himself used the call Yaakov Siddur. So I don't understand how he could have criticized it and used the, the uh, Siddur at the same time. And also we know that Reb Nachman um, had some, some interesting connections with Sabbatianism and the Sabbateans of his day. And completely unashamedly, he went into Kamanetz-Podolsk, which was known to be basically a crypto-Sabbatian town and spent a couple of days in the town and even told his students to remain behind and not to come into the, the town with him. Obviously, you know, what I know about Rabbi Nachman's philosophy, he would have said that he's gone into it in order to elevate it. It was very, very typical of Rabbi Nachman's writings and only he would have been able to have elevated the writings. Perhaps he was trying to elevate the, the Sidur as well by using it. And I say this because I know that Reb Nachman, um, just to go off at a slight tangent, was very much against the philosophical writings of the Rambam, and he told his students never ever to study the Rambam. Don't study uh, Morin Nevuchim, don't study the, philo the philosophical writings of the Rambam, of, my, of Maimonides. Why was that? Were they too... It was considered too rationalist for his followers or something Far like that? Far too rationalist. He probably considered the Rambam's writings to be not Jewish because they were based on uh, Aristotle. And they certainly weren't mystical. And the Baal Shem Tov was very, very – I mean, pardon me, uh, the uh, um, uh, Rambam was extremely anti-mystical. The Rambam didn't, be didn't believe in anything that you didn't have to believe in. Rambam said that belief in God is so important. It's like the, re the relationship between a man and his wife. A man loves only his wife. He doesn't share that love with anything else. So um, uh, be belief is such a um, ikar to Judaism. Belief in God is such a holy principle of 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 Judaism that one only applies it when one absolutely has to and wasn't, doesn't go out of one's way to look for situations where, where, where one can apply it. And for this reason, the Rambam said, don't believe in um, angels. He didn't believe in angels the way everyone else believed in angels, that they manifested as beings down here on, on earth. He didn't believe in any miracles besides the miracles that we are required to believe in by the Torah. But he didn't go to town to try and create a culture of belief in evil spirits, in anything else that was not absolutely necessary because emuna was so holy, was so important that one only uses it for one's relationship to Hashem and only when one is absolutely certain that one is dealing with nothing other than Hashem. And I think this might have been something that Rabbi Nachman would not have been comfortable with because uh, the mystical notion in Rab Nachman was a master mystic, um, requires for the space between man and God to be 
rather intense, some would say quite cluttered, whereas in the Maimonidean view, the space between man and God was non-existent. There was no clutter. There was nothing uh, interceding, intervening between man and, and God. So uh, Reb Nachman, just to, to go back, he said that he would read the Rambam's Moran Nevochim. His students mustn't read it, but he said he will read it. And why will he read it? Because he'll go into it and he'll elevate it. He'll do a tikkun. Right. Which, again, is extremely interesting um, considering that uh, tikkunim was part of the, exactly part of, of the whole process of the Sabbatian system as well. And again, once again, uh, I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying Nachman was a secret Sabbatian, but the ideas were there. The ideas, the ideas were ripe. They were for the picking. It's, it's really fascinating. And it's, um, I think maybe speaks to a, if we can psychoanalyze a little bit, uh, you know, to, <laughs> to use a contemporary term, you know, some aspects of the origins of, uh, of the Hasidic movement in that period, that it, this need for mysticism, uh, this need for secret knowledge, like we spoke about in an earlier episode is really deep seated. And I think hard to, Hard to ignore, perhaps, for the for the early Hasidim, for the Baal Shem Tov, you know, even for uh, Rev Nachman, that it, it, th- there was a need to incorporate this to satisfy a, a kind of psychological longing for, you know, something that goes beyond the surface, something that goes beyond a plain reading of the text, you know, a Rambam-like approach uh, that was that led them down these roads and perhaps led them to uh, to adopt these ideas of people like Lifshitz, despite the fact that there are some very unusual and, uh, you know, perhaps let's say heretical ideas, uh, in them, some, some sort of pseudo Christian foreign ideas, certainly foreign to Judaism, uh, in them that the, this mystical aspect of his work filled a need for the early Hasidic movement. And maybe that they, they took that, they ditched the, the overtly, problematic stuff, but they kept these mystical ideas and uh, the way that they were phrased in Lifshitz's work and carried them on through the evolution of, of the Hasidic movement and Hasidic Hashkafa. Yes, I've always said and I've always believed that the Baal Shem Tov found a model that worked. Shabzai Tzvi, we mentioned in the beginning, created probably the largest Jewish movement ever. Something was working. You know, whether he was right or wrong, that's not the point right now. But it worked. And I think that the Baal Shem Tov saw that it worked. And what worked the best? The notion of taking Kabbalah, which was an, an exclusive literature for an elitist group of people in the past, and presenting it to the masses, to the thirsty masses, who were deprived of such connections and such knowledge in the past. Shabzai Tzvi was a master of that. He had a huge following, a groundswell. And the Baal Shem Tov saw, would have seen, he would have been very aware of the fact that that worked. He wanted to do the same thing. And I think that he adopted a similar model. Um, you asked earlier on, the Baal Shem Tov seems to have endorsed the Siddur of Kol Yaakov, and you said that he, he didn't appear to hide it. I would say, on the contrary, um, he, 
he spoke a lot about hiding the writings. One of these days, I think we must have a look at the Ches and letters, Jordan. I've translated 300 letters, the 300 um, declassified letters. Wow. Uh, into English for for the first time. I've spent three years doing that. Um, Writings that were uh, uh, letters written from the Baal Shem Tov and the Maggid of Mezrej and the first and second and even the third generation of the Hasidic movement. Um, We'll talk about this at a later stage. They're quite controversial. Most modern scholars regard them as forgeries, but in Lubavitch and in some other Hasidic camps, and courts, they are considered to be absolutely authentic and absolutely accurate. But the point I'm trying to make is that however you view the Gersen Geniza or the Gersen archives or the Gersen letters, Gersen was a town, by the way, in the southern Ukraine where these letters were found. But um, um, a, a very common thread that you find in those letters is the Baal Shem Tov writing to his wife and to other people um, fascinating letters. He says, just go urgently go and hide hide the teachings of Harav Hayudua, of the well-known rabbi. But he doesn't write who the rabbi was. Go and hide the teachings. And we see this again mm. and again, and not just him, but other people as well, writing frantically. You know, they're away from home. Baal Shem Tov says, you'll find the writings, and he describes where they were, according to the Chesan letters, in a kiss next to his uh, Yontav Streimel, and he says, go and just hide those writings. And I, I'm, I'm fascinated what write, what I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by what were those what writings had to be hidden in the early 1700s. Couldn't have been Gomorrah. Everybody studied Gomorrah. Couldn't be Kabbalah. Lots of people studied Kabbalah. What writings? You know, it's, it's not Medrash. It's not Chumash. It's, it's not Tehillim. Uh, what writings would need to be hidden? Yeah, the only thing that needed to be hidden would have been the writings of Shapsai Tzvi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps even uh, some other writings of people like uh, Yaakov Kopolivshitz. Well, I would put them all in the same category, yes. Yes. And again, I'm not suggesting that the Baal Shem Tov was a secret Sabbatian, but again, he, he certainly would have, would have used that um, model to um, help him with his... Um, um, dream and with his aim of 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 bringing Judaism, especially mystical Judaism, to the masses. It's a it's a really interesting story, and the threads that link all of these different aspects of Jewish history are are just fascinating to explore. Tenuous though they may be, in some cases, mm. uh, it's just things that we don't talk about, perhaps, or think about enough uh, when we're considering the flow of Jewish history. So, uh, really fascinating. So, Gavin, how about some contemporary opinions of Yaakov Kopolivshitz? How has modern scholarship looked at his legacy? Okay, if we start with um, Gershom Sholem, a lot of people don't like the way Gershom Sholem wrote. They regarded him as being an anti-religious, uh, anti-Hasidic uh, uh, scholar. And one thing about Gershom Sholem is he certainly knew his Hasidic history. And he says that um, it has been proven conclusively that the author, that's the author of uh, the Siddur and Shargan Eden, Yaakov Kopolivshitz, that the author was an outstanding crypto Sabbatian and based his doctrine to a very considerable extent 
on the Sabbatian writings of Nathan of Gaza. So that's just an interesting quote from Gershon Sholem, who appears to have no doubt whatsoever, and he believes that it's been proven beyond question um, that um, uh, Lifshitz was a um, Sabbatian. A more contemporary scholar is Professor um, Yosef Dan, and he again has some very interesting things to say. Again, he's forthright and he says, I'll quote to you, he says, uh, Jacob Koppel, Jakob Koppel was influenced by the Sabbatian movement in Poland and he himself influenced Hasidism. That for me, um, Jordan, is a lovely quote because here we have someone who actually makes a direct link between the Sabbatian movement and the Hasidic movement and the link becomes Jakob Koppel himself and mm. that's the view of, of, of um, Dan. Dan also tells us that not only did Yaakov Koppel write Shargarnadin and his Sidur called Yaakov, but he wrote another commentary, commentary on the Zohar called Nachalat Yaakov, but that's been lost. Again, without pushing the point too much, we know that Shabzai Tzvi was extremely interested in the Zohar, and like the Kabbalah of the um, Arizal, he abused the Zohar as as well. Dan continues to tell us that, that Yaakov Koppel's main um, teacher was his brother. And his brother, we know, was definitely a Sabbatian scholar. So that's hmm. another, you know, sort of indication, a, a very strong indication of the link. Um, Dan agrees with um, Gershon Sholem regarding the um, credo of Nathan of, God, of, of, of Gaza, which you find in, in the Shar Gan, Gan Eden. And he also tells us that Yaakov Koppel Lifshitz wrote a lot about the Sefirot, but he gave the Sefirot, he gave them a sexual innuendo, male and female. And once again, that was something that was very common in um, and also, as you pointed out early on, particularly perhaps even more so with um, Jacob Frank a little bit later on. Um, he tells us that um, the early Hasidim loved the writings of Yaakov Kopolifshitz, but the more mm. conservative Kabbalists regarded him a little bit more suspiciously. Um, I think I will conclude with just a little point um, from a contemporary Kabbalist. If we can mention scholars, we can mention Kabbalists. So this Kabbalist, <laughs> this, this, this Kabbalist is Yaakov, Mo Yaakov Moshe Hillel. And he warns in his writings, stay away from the Arizal's Kabbalah as seen through the eyes of his one student, Yisrael Srug, only study the Kabbalah of the Arizal through his bona fide student, Chaim Vital. All mm -hmm. right, so he's warning us. Um, I wrote an article about this, about the uh, battle for the soul of the Arizal. Perhaps we can also do that at, at some stage. But who owned the writings of the Arizal? Was it um, Yisrael Srug or was it Chaim Vital? Depends who you ask. But anyway, according to Moshe Hillel, 
The correct answer is Chaim Vital, not Yisrael Srug. Stay away, he says, from the Kabbalah of Yisrael Srug. But then he says something fascinating and an irony of ironies, and it relates to what we're talking about today, and it's a nice point to uh, end on. He says, however, there are some works that you are allowed to read, even though they contain references of Srug. And he says, what's that? He says, the Sabbatian work of Shargan This is a quote from him. The Sabbatian work of Shargan Eden. Now, now listen to this. This is fascinating on, on two counts. One is we have a Kabbalist who clearly comes out and says Yaakov Koppel was a Sabbatian and that the Shargan Eden was a Sabbatian work. And um, um, he says, but you can still read it. It's okay to read it even though it's a Sabbatian work and even though it contains a citation of Srug because it's a good book. Wow. And if that's an irony of ironies, uh, um, even, even though you're going to have to read about Yisrael Srug, it's worthwhile reading Shargan Eden, never mind the fact that the author was definitely a secret Sebastian. It's worthwhile looking into that book. So that's from the words of a contemporary um, Kabbalist, which sort of doesn't shed, shed much light on the subject, but just creates um, perhaps more of an atmosphere of, of intrigue. That's fascinating. It's like, uh, you be careful not to read works by the wrong student of the Arizal, but this admittedly Sabbatean work is okay and you should right, read it. Right, right. <laughs> it's hard to wrap one's mi- mind around it, but yes, it's uh, very, very interesting. Really fascinating. Thanks so much, Gavin, for this conversation. It's been really interesting. Jordan, I've enjoyed talking to you and stay well and all the best. Thank you. You too. Take care.